0: So how are we doing today? We good? We ready to go? All right, we're ready to go. Fantastic. We are finishing our series on Song of Solomon. It has been such a great series. I have enjoyed it so much. Really, really have. And uh, it's been an incredible thing to learn about. Um, an amazing uh, book of the Bible. So we're going to kind of finish it up hopefully well here today. Um, go ahead and we're going to spend time in two different passages. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Go ahead and, and put, just put uh, markers in both places, because when I move from Song of Solomon to James chapter 1, up on the screen, you should see a slide. If you don't know where those books are, you can just look at the page numbers and the Bible's provided for you. If you don't, ha- if you don't have the Bible provided for us, they will not be the same page numbers. All right. Uh, so so um, go ahead and turn there right now, put your, you know, something piece of paper in there so you can flip there quickly. All right, well, we're finishing up uh, the Song of Solomon. It's been a great series, and one of the overarching themes and ideas of of the series has been the union or the oneness of the husband and wife. And we've talked about the idea that this oneness that God describes in biblical marriage is the idea that when we arrive at the end of our marriage, when we arrive at the end of our lives together, we arrive in wholeness and not in brokenness. In other words, you and I set out goals. We set out goals. I call these predetermined destinations, right? So we set out goals in our life when we set out these predetermined destinations. We set out goals in our life and we hope that we get there to those goals. We're shooting for those goals. We're aiming for those goals. We're hoping to move in that direction, and those goals can be big things. They can be financial things. They can be spiritual things. They can be relational things, whatever they are. We put them out there as a set of goals, and we start walking in that way. Now, here's the thing. There are multiple paths that lead to our goals, really, and so we're going to talk about just two of them, right? Not multiple paths that lead to God. Don't get me mistaken here, but multiple paths that lead to our goals, right? There is God's good plan, right, that leads to God's good blessings, there's God's good path that leads to God's good blessings. So you're walking down God's good path, and that leads to blessings. And what you'll find is as you walk along the road, that there are good things along that path. As you walk on good, God's path, there are blessings along the way. Now, the reality is, even though there are blessings on this path that God has laid out before us, there are still troubles and hardships and difficulties, and we're going to look at some of that today. We're going to look at the anatomy of a temptation today we're going to look at the anatomy of a temptation but as we're walking down this path that God has us on he has us on paths where he's going to leave blessings all along the way now the problem comes when we look at a goal that we have down here we want to take a a shortcut we jump off of God's path and we start walking somewhere else right? Now all of these paths, right? So we're walking parallel maybe to the path that God has for us, but we're deviated a little bit, right? We start heading in a different direction. The problem with it is that we end up missing all these wonderful blessings that God's laid out for us to be able to receive. There is a connection, watch this, there's a connection between obedience and blessing. Now, I want to make a difference, a distinction, because people get this really, really confused in their head. And I'm going, to, I'm going to throw out two big theological terms for you, and then I'm going to explain them so you can at least look them up later if you want to for further development. Okay? Here we go. The first is called monergism, and the other called synergism, right? Monergism is the idea, and it deals with justification the idea that when we are chosen for salvation, that God does it single handedly. In other words, God comes to us. Here we are, we're off of God's good path with his good uh, gifts, and we're walking our own road. It's broken. It's janked. It's all messed up. It's filled with suffering and hardship, and as a result of that, one day, all of a sudden, we cry out to God, but that's because God has come, and he's grabbed us, and he puts us on his path, right? And when we're on his path, all of a sudden, our heart and our mind and everything starts thinking, wow, maybe this is a good path that I should walk on, and God is with us on this path. He's not so much with us when we step off his path, right? And so monergism basically basically says this, that you, 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 If you're a a Christian, God had everything to do with that, and you had very little to do with that, if anything at all, right? In other words, God grabbed you and says to you, hey, I love you, I'm putting you on my path, and then begins this thing called synergism, right? Which is synergism basically says it's now you and God. So once God takes you out of your sinful old life and puts you on his path, his good path that leads to his good gifts, as he puts you on this new path, here's what happens. Now... It is up to you. It is up to you, and it's up to God. God works in our hearts. He leads us. He guides us. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard that quiet voice in the background going, hey, don't head in that direction. Don't, don't, don't go. That's not just your conscience. That can be the spirit. Don't go in that direction. Or, hey, I want you to do this, right? Just specific things along the way that's going to lead to good blessings. Now, the challenge is this, is that if we don't do anything, we just kind of sit there like, and we hope that something good happens, it's not going to. This is why we say all the time, God shows up when we show up. We actually have to take a step, right? Which is why we talk about taking our next step toward Christ. People have to take steps. I believe that spiritual life, if it is to grow, is a life in motion. You cannot grow when you are stagnant. You cannot grow when you are stationary. You have to take a step. And as we take a step, God presents an opportunity for us. We walk in faith in that. And then we have confidence. We walk in more faith. We have more confidence. We walk in more faith and we have more confidence. And this is what, how, it, how it works. But the problem comes when we get enticed, when we get lured away from the plan and the path. And when we are lured away from that path, we can't look at God and go, oh, look, I find myself in a destination point that I didn't want to. I didn't want to be in. And now we look at God and go, why'd you let me get here? No, 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 no. God's done his part. It's a good gift. That's why we say salvation is a gift from God. Because he comes, he says, all right, I love you so much. Even though you hate me, you're doing all kinds of things that I would not recommend you doing. I'm just going to choose you because I love you so much and I'm putting you on the path. Now we're on the path. We have to do something with that. We can't just sit there and expect for God to change us. We begin to walk. And as we walk, God begins to change us. And as we take steps, God begins to build our faith and he builds our faith. And eventually and continuously, we're receiving the blessings that God has for us. The very posture of God himself is that he desires to bless your life, but he cannot bless a life that is in abject disobedience to him. So if you find yourself in just like a place right now, and listen, I'm not throwing stones. I mean, you may be new here. So you're like, man, that guy's throwing stones. But if you've been here for a long time, you know that I'm open and honest about my sinful, terrible, awful personal choices, and bad background. Like, I have no stones to throw at you. Listen, so that's not it. But as a brother, I want to say obedience actually matters. Because obedience along God's good path leads to God's good gifts. It leads to wholeness. So that one day in your relationship, when you arrive at some of those predetermined points that you've laid out together, you arrive whole and okay and not all messed up. I mean, we call that college today, right? Like you go through college, right? Like, I mean, just like we need to really rethink this whole thing. Not college. Go to college. It's good. But, but we need to rethink this whole thing. Like we go to college we're these wonderful kids, and then we get there, and all this freedom hits us, and we make all these choices that end up damaging our hearts and our souls, and we come out, and we're all messed up. I can't tell you how many kids I've had to talk to over the years that in college they just got there and wrecked their lives, Why? Because something shiny lured us away from what we knew and what we were told when we were growing up, and it ended up hurting us along the way. And I just want us to avoid some of that. I want our kids to avoid that. So let's take a look. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 8. The brothers are talking here, and this is the first time we see the brothers introduced in chapter 8, verse 8. It starts like this. We have a little sister. Now, this is the Shulamite woman. This is our bride. This is Solomon's wife. But they're thinking about her when she was young. So I, I have to tell you that when the pastors and I sat down to read this text uh, together this week and talk it through, it's just an awkward text. Like, if you've read it already, you're smiling. Like, none of you are like, yeah, and it's cr- I want to know what you're going to say. Like, you know, it's pretty crazy. So here we go. This is what I'm going to say. Here we go. Let's read. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. But what shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for? If she's a wall, we'll build on her a battlement of silver. But if she's a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. And then she, so the brothers are thinking back in the past about her, and now this is her talking in the present. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I, w- it's okay to laugh. Uh, then, then <laughs> you guys are so t- tight. I mean, it's in the Bible. Right? Okay? Like, I'm not just making up words. Okay? Here we go. If she is a wall, we'll build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. And then she says, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman, and let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. <coughs> so... um, my daughter is uh, brilliant. She is a very, very intelligent kid, right? And she has an engineer's mind. And so she's really good at math and science and things like that, which we encourage and love. Um, one day she said to me, hey, Daddy, I want to I wanna swing in the backyard. And we've got some killer oak trees in our yard that have these really cool branches that dip down that are perfect for swings, right? And so I'm like, okay, cool. Well, we'll here's, what, here's what we'll do. We'll buy you a big, like, we'll get you a big swing and some slides and you can, like, you know, jungle gym bars. She's like, I don't want any of that. She goes. Well, all I want is just a single solitary swing, and I want to do it myself. I was like, okay, just thinking she wouldn't be able to do it very well. And uh, so she cuts. She gets all this cord, you know, and this twine and stuff. And then she cuts a board, and it's a perfect board for a seat, you know. And, and then she takes this, this, this uh, rock, and she ties the rope to it, and she chucks it over the thing, and it comes down, so now she's got a pulley system here, and she then ties the swing at the very, very bottom, does this whole thing herself. I come home one day, and there she is. Just swing on a tree. I'm like, who did that? Kelly's like, Katie did it, you know, and she, so she's out there doing it, and I just happened to be walking by the other day, uh, like through our family room, and it's like the back of our house is kind of glass. Don't look in. And uh, so, so, we're, so we're just walking. We're walking. I'm walking through and I see Katie and she's swinging and swinging. I'm always nervous about this thing. And I see the thing just break at this point right here. So she just goes, wah, you know, and bam, right down on her back. And it was just awful. And so I'm looking out there like, what's gonna happen next? Like, is she gonna cry? Is she gonna be like, whatever, you know? So she was like, whatever, until she st- saw me. And she was, you know, and I'm like, oh, come out there. And I hug her. And I'm like, are you okay? She's like, my swing broke and my butt hurts. It's about daddy. She goes, will you pick me up and take me inside? So I'm like, yeah. So I pick her up. And pull every muscle on my back, and I and I put I put her into I put her into her bed. I put on a nice cartoon, and it's just cool. She's just she's. I'm like, are you okay? She's like, I could use a milk, you know. And so I get her a milk, you know, you know, get her milk. So we, we do all that, and it's great. It's fantastic. So she's she's doing okay. There, there's something in a father's heart that, does, that is designed by God to protect his daughter. Like there's just all good dads love their daughters and want to protect them, but I don't think it's just dads. I think it's also brothers, too. Uh, my middle son, uh, <laughs> uh, my daughter came home and was telling my wife and I, I got three boys at school that like me. I'm like, of course they do. You're beautiful and smart. Why would they not? Right? And, so, and, and she's like, there's this one boy that really likes me. I kind of like him, you know? And I'm like, well, that's cool, but, you know, we don't date at 11. Like, you know, this isn't West Virginia, like, you know, we're like we don't, we just like this. We don't, we're not, we're not those people. We don't date at 11 years old. So here's what I want you to do. I want you, I want you to, I want you to like him and I want you to be friends with him. But any boy that likes you beyond a friend right now, and as I said that, Connor walks by and goes, who likes her beyond a friend right now? And I go, some boy. He goes, we'll see, you know, and uh, I'm just like, yeah, that's my boy. That's my boy. I'm like, that's Fantastic. So, you know, he's threatening this 11-year-old boy, and, uh, which is awesome. Um, this is what's happening here in the text. In the text right here, you've got her brothers, and they're like, we have this little sister, and she has no breasts. That's just their, her way, their way of saying she's really young. Like, this is prepubescent sister. What are we going to—and it says here, what shall we do for our sister? In other words, how shall we care for her? Like, as brothers, how do we manage the circumstances of her life so that in the predetermined destination points that she wants to arrive at, she arrives whole and not broken? Like, how do we do that? What do we do? What shall we do for our sister on the day that she's spoken of? They're saying, how do we get her to the wedding night whole? And then this imagery doesn't take Sigmund Freud to figure it out. Verse 9 says this, If she's a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she's a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar, right? So it's saying if she's a wall and she protects her virtue, if she remains a virgin until her, her, until her marriage, if, she's, if she protects her, her virtue, right, That she, she acts as if there's a wall around her that no one can penetrate until she chooses to give herself freely to him. If she acts like that, we're going to give her, we'll build a battlement of silver on her. We will adorn her and say, well done, sister, that's great. That's fantastic. This is a father's heart for his daughter. And this is, this is a brother's heart for his sister. We're going to like praise her and we're going to give her good things. We're going to give her silver. We're going to adorn her. But, but if she's a door, if people can just kind of come in and come out, if she's a door, we're going to enclose her with boards of cedar, right? In other words, like I'm going to lock her in the closet. That's what, that's, that, 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 that's what this is right here. We're going to lock her in the closet until that day when she's ready to date, right? When she's ready to marry, actually. And she now they're remembering this from the past. She now speaking in the present in the story. She goes, "You guys, I was a wall. You didn't need to worry about me. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers." There's nothing really to say about that other than she's bragging, you know. So, like, uh, so then, this is beautiful. She says this. Then I was in his eyes, as one who finds peace. And whose eyes? In Solomon, her husband's eyes. She says. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. This is a woman here who is whole, self-possessed, pure, and spotless. No one takes anything from her. She gives herself freely to Solomon. And when Solomon sees her as she's arrived at this destination point where they'll be together as a married couple, he sees her filled with peace. She's not lived a life of regret and fear and worry. She's not been overwhelmed by bad choices from the past. Why? Because the obedience of her past has enlightened her present. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. In other words, Solomon had this incredible vineyard. It was an amazing vineyard. He was king, so he had the best of the best. And so every once in a while, he would let open the vineyard and he would allow certain people to come in, but it would require them to give him a thousand pieces of silver, which was significant. However, if you were rich and you could afford to go into Solomon's vineyard, you would pay him a thousand pieces of silver, you would go in and you would have first dibs on all of the great grapes. This is like going to the grocery store. You don't just go in and buy eight apples. You pick through the apples. You look at the oranges. You make sure the bananas are slightly green uh, so that they're not going to be overripened in a matter of days, right? This is what we do. In the same reason, in the same way, these guys would come in, come to the, the, the vineyard and basically say, we're going to take the best of the best. We paid for the best. We're going to have the best. And she is saying this after that. She goes, you have this, and people pay a lot of money for it, Solomon. My vineyard? She's talking about herself. My vineyard, my sense of self, my worth My very own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a 1,000 and have keepers of the fruit of 200. You got 200 keepers of this vineyard, I just have me. And my vineyard, myself, I give it to who I want to give it to. It It is my value, my worth, my sense of self. She arrives here in a beautiful place. But I would argue to us today that very, very few of us arrive whole on this day. And I think a big reason for it is because we find ourselves taking the shortcut along the way. And again, not throwing stones because I failed in this as well. But I wish that I would have been able to walk God's good path toward his good gifts because in my life, I missed a bunch of really good gifts along the good path. And I thought I would step across that line and look and say, hey, maybe there's a shortcut. I can go this way. I can do this. And that ended up causing me a ton of pain and a ton of hardship and a ton of regret. And so the good news about this is if you have failed this like I did, What you can do is you can't go back again and undo it, but here's what you can do. You can start over again. And the beautiful thing about starting over again right here and now is that God forgives us for everything that we've done in the past. We just talked about that in communion. There is no sin overtaking you, but such that is common to man, the Bible says. But God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape for you when you are tempted so that you can bear it. So there's nothing that, that will come your way that you can't escape. So here's what the letter of James says. Turn there, if you will. James chapter 1. So, the first thing I want you to know is that James is written, the book of James is written by a man named James. There was uh, two Jameses. There was an apostle named James, and then there was another James. His name was James, the brother of Jesus, right? And so, this brother who writes this, if you look in verse 1 right now, you'll you'll see that he says, you know, James an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is the exact phrase of this? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when James writes that, that's a profound change for him. It's a profound change because James, being the brother of Jesus, didn't exactly grow up with Jesus, but he also never, ever accepted Jesus or received Jesus as God in this life. He heard about the great miracles that Jesus did. Jesus and him didn't really grow up together. They were different places, but he rejected it. And when they did interact with him, it seemed that he kind of mocked him a few times. It seemed that he actually uh, tried to get him in some trouble at one point at least. And so James was not a follower of his brother at all, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, somebody comes to you that's your brother or sister, even if they're a distant cousin, and they say, hey, I'm God. You're going to go, okay, all right, thanks. You know, and uh, that's just a crazy thought process. And so here... When James becomes a servant of Jesus Christ, it's because Jesus is raised from the dead. And what you need to realize is that in the early church, they didn't just walk by faith. They walked by sight over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul says to people over and over and over again, he says to them, hey, if you don't believe me that Jesus was raised by the dead, go talk to that guy. He was there on the day. Go chat with that guy. And Jesus didn't just appear to a bunch of people in a back room or an upper room hidden from everybody else or some dude in the back alley over here in the corner. Jesus one time appeared to 500 people at a big giant meeting. At 500 people at one meeting. Well, what it doesn't record is the conversation, but here's what we know. Jesus had a conversation with his brother James after his resurrection. We don't know the content of that conversation, but somehow in some way after that that conversation his brother becomes the senior pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He becomes one of the most influential and powerful people early in the church. He sets doctrine and and all kinds of things in the church. He is 100% all in for his brother. Why? Because he saw him after he was dead. He saw him crucified. He saw him raised from the dead. Now, this James talks about this trial, these trials that we're going to have, this challenges we're going to have. We're all going to have trials and tribulations. On God's good path with God's good gifts, there are still hardships along the way. There are hardships. So how do we interpret these hardships, and what do we do about them? That's the book. That's the content of the book of James. Here we go. Verse 2 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the, we, we've got three words here. We've got trials, we've got tribulations, right? And we've got tests in this passage. Trials, tribulation, and tests. The first two are very similar to one, of trials and tribulations, right? Um, trials and tribulations are designed, temptations rather, are designed to bring out the worst in us. A temptation, and we're going to look at the anatomy of a temptation in a minute, but a temptation is designed by either, God, either by Satan or by someone else or even by ourselves to test us, not to test us, sorry, I got the words wrong, to tempt us in a way that allows us to walk off of God's good path with God's good gifts, right? So a temptation will pull us off the path, and it's designed specifically to bring out the worst in us. Whereas God never tempts us, but, but sometimes tests us. And the two things may look very similar. The question is this, what is the final result? You see, Abraham was tested by God. God came to Abraham in the Old Testament and said, hey, Abram, I love you, but if you love me, you have to do this radical and crazy thing. You gotta take your son, Isaac, up at the mountain, up Mount Moriah, and you've got to plunge a stake into his heart. You gotta kill him. You have to sacrifice him to me which this was very, very common in the Old Testament, believe it or not. Religions all around Judaism were doing this constantly, right? So this was not an uncommon thought process for somebody in this time period in history. But God had already come out and said, hey, I don't condone this. I don't want you to do this. So it was very odd for God to come to Abraham and say, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. Here's what we know because the Bible gives us this information. As Abraham is climbing the mountain in order to be able to sacrifice his son Isaac, he's thinking to himself, if I'm required to, st- to, to plunge this knife into my son's heart, it's going to break my heart, but God can raise him from the dead. If I have to do this, God can raise him from the dead. If I have to do this, God will raise him from the dead. So he gets up there. He sets the altar out. It's always stunning to me when Isaac asks the question, hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And he says, son, lay down, that his son actually lays down? I mean, what an incredible thing. What an incredible trust in his father. And what an incredible trust that Abraham had in his father as well. He lays down on there. And he says, Isaac, I don't know the words beforehand because we're not privy to them, but I'm sure as a father to his son, he talked to him and told him that he loved him. He pulled out that knife, and he begins to plunge it in his heart. And as he's mid-plunge, an angel of the Lord speaks from heaven and says, Abraham, stay your hand. Don't do that. Don't do this thing. And then all of a sudden over here in the bushes, there's this ram that's up here, and he's the sacrifice that God needed. But a test here. God asks him to do something. Now, Abraham loved God, but Abraham didn't know how much he loved God until he was willing to give up the thing that he loved the absolute most, which was his son. God would never have let him do this evil thing. And that even if he did, and was required to plunge this into his son's heart and watch the life drain out of him, he knew that God could bring all of that life back to him and not cause him any permanent harm. It's a crazy thing, but that's a massively different thing than a temptation, which is designed not to show you that you are faithful, and to show you that you have trust in God, but a temptation is to show you that there's another path that you can find hope apart from God. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Hey, am I the only person in the room right now that just doesn't do this very well? I mean, when bad things are like rolling through your life, I mean, it is sometimes very, very hard to go, blessed be the name of the Lord. You am right? I mean, is that not hard? So James is saying though, for us, our hope is and being able to count it as joy. Like, it should be a joyful thing when hard things come because our God is with us. Verse two, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, which enhances things, it produces things. What does it produce? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, the word here, perfect, doesn't mean the way that you and I think of perfect, because we always say that nobody's perfect, right? But it means whole. It means what we just talked about that you arrive at a predetermined destination point, okay? That you arrive there well. You arrive there not completely in broken pieces. You're not just limping across the finish line, right? And so, when he says here that count it joy, because when you're tested, it will produce perseverance. So, here I am, I'm at a pastor's meeting, and it was just an informal gathering of like 50 pastors. Um, it was in Winter Garden, and I was just hanging out with uh, these guys. Some had bigger churches than ours, and some had smaller churches than ours. And uh, the, everybody kind of take, takes this moment, all of a sudden, turns to me, and they say, "Hey, we know that you built a church that's that's pretty large, and you did it from like 25 people sitting around a group. How how'd you do that? Like, what's the key to growing a church?" All these pastors are tuned in, and I go, "I don't know. Like, I I, go, I don't know. Like, I." I, I, don't know. Like, I, I I, I don't know that there is a key to growing a church. I don't know what, I've never been able to figure that out. If I could, I'd be super rich. I could just sell that to pastors and it'd be great, right? But, but no, 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 there is no like key to it. He, they go, well, that's very anticlimactic. And I'm like, well, I know, but listen, like here's, what it, here's the only thing I got, perseverance. Perseverance. Like you just have to continue to press through. Like when shiny things come along your way, I mean, I can't tell you how many times other jobs came along the way early in the church for us. And they said, like, I said, I know God's called me to plant grace. I know I'm supposed to walk down God's good path, which is going to have all these good gifts on it. But right now, when you're starting out on God's good path, this, this good path just looks like a really meager path. You know, I went from teaching at the former church I was at, 6,000 people, to 25. That's like really hard because it's a whole different skill set. It's easy to talk to large groups of people. It's hard to talk to just 25 people. And there we were. It was meager, it was hard, it was crazy, it was filled with trials, it was filled with tests, it was filled with tribulations. And all that God said is, I'm with you. That's all he told, it's all he ever tells me almost. I'm with you, I'm with you. God, I don't know if I can continue. I just, I feel so like broken. My pride is, is, is messed up. I'm just like, I don't know if I can continue. I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Just take steps, perseverance, until one day God says, I'm beginning to bless what you're doing. You're gonna have those moments in your life. All of us are gonna have those moments in our life. God has a path for you. He has a plan for you. And it's gonna be very, very tempting to jump off that path, but you're gonna miss all the good blessings that God has for you along the way. Don't be tempted. Don't walk away. Trust that these tests in front of you are designed to bring out good and beautiful things in you. It creates endurance, perseverance, an overwhelming sense that God is with you and it says this that when you have perseverance when you have endurance when you have steadfastness when you can push through the hard it will have its full effect that you may be perfect complete and lacking in nothing in other words there's nothing that's going to hit you that's going to take you down verse 13 skip down to verse 13 James 1:13 it says this, because sometimes this doesn't always work really well for us. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But, 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 each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. All right. So my son loves to fish, and so he'll put these lures on the lines, right? So phew, throw that out there. It lands in the water, and all of a sudden, each one of these lures are designed. And if you know anything about fishing, because I really don't, but I know very basic things. So, so what I note is that there are different lures for different kinds of fish, right? Right. In other words, there are different things that appeal to the fish underneath. I would have thought it was just the same thing. They're fish, right? So, but, but there are different lures that appear to different fish and they attract them in different ways. There are certain lures that a fish will go right by. Why? Because they don't care about it at all. It's not important to them. That's not what I'm interested in. But all of a sudden, when that lure lands a few feet away from them and it's exactly what they're looking for, they run to it, they grab it, and all of a sudden when they bite into that thing, the worst thing in their life happens they start getting pulled in against their will, and then they die. In the very Beautiful. Fishing's great, isn't it? So, 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 but, but listen, this is what the Bible's saying. Satan frequently will and there's a lure out there, and it's designed specifically for you. Other people are going to walk right by it, but man, it is your lure. And you're going to look at that and go, oh man, I'm on God's good path with God's good gifts, but That's really, that's good. I, I I think that might be a shortcut to get what I'm looking for. I know I'm trying to arrive at this predetermined destination point, but maybe this is a shortcut that will help me get there even faster. So you jump off the path, you grab the lure, all of a sudden, you're in a place where you don't want to be and you're getting pulled in. We've all found ourselves in places like that. Here's what the Bible says about that. That we can't look at God then and say, hey, God, why are you just disappointing me right now? Like, why are, you, why are you falling short in my life? Why? Because this is a synergistic activity. This is you, me, and God together, right? This is me and God. This isn't just about God saying, hey, I'm gonna pull you into your destination point. This is him saying, you gotta take steps. But if you take a step off of God's good path with God's good gifts, we find ourselves attracted to something else. And in that desire for the shortcut, we miss the good gifts. And then we look at God and go, why? Why'd you do that to me? And he's up in heaven going, really? Like, I didn't do it to you. You jumped off of the road. You jumped off the path, and now you're missing some good gifts. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Notice here that sometimes this is not even Satan. This is just us. We get pulled by our own desires. And maybe what that means is that some of our desires do not line up with God's good path. And if that's the case, what that means is that if my desires don't line up with God's good path where God's good gifts are, then that means that that goal, that predetermined destination point that I want may be off God's path. And that's the only way I can get there is to jump off his path. But instead of changing the goal, which belongs on the path, I change myself and I step off the path. He says, man, this just wrecks you. He's like, here's what happens. Here's what it looks like. But each person when he's tempted is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire when it has fully conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. This is the anatomy of a of a temptation right here, verse 15. Desire conception. So here's what we want to say. Temptations are not sins. So guys, if you are tempted by a pretty woman to do the wrong thing, that's not a sin but it is a warning sign. It's like driving down the road, and all of a sudden, you know, it says oil. You know, It's almost too late right there, right? When the thing goes on, here's what's gonna happen. You're either gonna try to drive, you're either gonna turn it off and park right here and then call AAA, you're gonna change course of what you're doing, or you're gonna keep driving, hoping that, man, I can get to the gas station. And then the engine freezes up, seizes up, and it's dead. You're done. By the time that the temptation comes, you need to realize that is a warning sign. That's a warning sign saying, hey, you need to move and change course. Because if you continue to walk down that same road, and I'm talking to the ladies too. I know I, I said guys, but, but this is for everyone when the temptation hits on there. And here's, here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like, okay? Anatomy of a temptation. You start talking to someone who's not your wife, male or female, right? You start talking to someone who's not your wife. It's friendly. It's innocent. It's great. You're like, oh, we're buddies. And then like one day she says, man, my husband's driving me crazy. And you're like, you know what? My wife does that same thing too. She's driving me crazy too. And now it's it's you guys sharing back and forth the things that you don't really like about each other's spouses. And before you know it, man, you've crossed lines that you don't want to cross. But what I want you to see is that nobody falls in. Oh, whoops. I had an affair on accident. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Look look at what it says here. When desire has conceived, and when I think of it, it's conceived in my brain, oh, man, she's nice. She's pretty. Or he's, I don't know what he would be, but whatever. You know, the, the, the parallel, right? He's pretty. He's nice. They understand me. No one else seems to understand me like they do. And sin conceived. Eventually, it gives birth to sin. And when it, the, the giving birth to sin here is the crossing of the line. And it can be with your money, it can be with your sexuality, it can be with your dreams, it could be, be anything. You just cross that line. You know when you've crossed the line. But here's the problem. When you cross the line, you've grabbed hold of the lure, and it's not so easy to pull the lure out of your mouth. Sometimes it pulls you places you don't want to go. When desire has conceived in my brain, my thoughts, my heart, it gives birth to sin And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Notice that phrase, it's a qualification right there. When sin is fully grown, not when it first starts, because here's what happens when it first starts, awesome times ensue, right? The Bible even says it, sin is pleasurable for a season. In other words, when you walk off of God's good path with God's good gifts, man, for a little while, you're like, this is an awesome path. I found a shortcut, I'm different. I've cheated the system, it's good. This is where I'm going. And we start heading that direction. Here's what happens though. The problem happens is this. No one cheats the system. No one gets away with anything. And as a result, we find ourselves producing death eventually. And the death part of this, it sneaks up on you when you least expect it. All of a sudden, everything's going right, 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 right. And then death comes. And it can come in all kinds of ways. The death of a marriage, the death of friendships, the death of your finances, the death of whatever it is. So what do we do about this? How do we deal with it? Verse 18 says this, that he brought us from his own will. He brought us forth with the word of truth. How does, God, how does God change us? How does he bring us forth? How does he create next steps in us? Through this book right here, right here. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This first fruits of the creatures things reminds us of what Song of Solomon talks about the vineyard. A first fruit is the person who gets to go in first and take the best out of it. God called you by the scriptures, by the word of truth, so that you would be the best of breed, so that you would be the best that God has called in this world. We are called as Christians to be different. And this is how he finishes this whole thing. Here we are. He says this, when you hear God's word, because it's powerful and sharp and penetrating, when you hear God's word, this is what he says but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He's saying this, if you listen to the word of God and it doesn't change your heart and you don't, you're not changed by it, then you've deceived yourself into believing that you value it when you really don't. In other words, the word has no point. It has no power unless you receive it and take a step. This is synergism. We become deceived. Verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, this book right here, the law of freedom, liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, what does it say? He will be what? Blessed Blessed in his doing or her doing. So at the end of the day, saying, listen, obedience and blessing go hand in hand. You can't just hear God's word, walk away, and go, man, that was a great sermon. Let's apply none of it. Because it's like looking at yourself in the mirror and going, oh, man, that's a good looking guy. And then then going away, what do I look like? It makes the mirror pointless. It makes the word of God pointless. Here's how we end the Song of Solomon in our sermon for today. My vineyard is my very own before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand and the keepers of 200 fruit. Then he responds to her and he says, This, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. He just wants to hear her voice. He says that she dwells in gardens. We talked about the difference between a field which is planted and then stripped for what it can produce. A garden is different because it's designed specifically to be beautiful, to be glorious, to be precious. And so he says, you are my precious one. And then she responds, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Come to me right now. I need to be near you. I love how they finish this entire thing kind of just mid-story. They finish speaking to each other tenderly to one another. And here's the reason why. She was a wall. Listen, if you're not married right now, be a wall. Not for the sake of God holding back fun, because sin has pleasure for a season. But if you're not married right now, or if you're not, if you're, yeah, if you're not married and you haven't been married before, or you're going to be married again one day, if you're in that single state, be a wall. Be somebody who is self-possessed. Give yourself to somebody who deserves it, a husband who's willing to lay his life down for you forever and ever and ever. That's the person that you need to give because the whole topic we've been talking about in this entire series is the two becoming one as they become body, mind, and spirit one. And if you're in a marriage right now, and that's just not where you're at, your bodies are one, but your spirit and your heart is not one, this is the time, this is the season. Now is the moment for you to come together and do everything that you can to persevere and to get closer to one another so that the passionate love that we've seen in the song of Solomon can be your story too. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the beauty of the scriptures. Thank you for the beauty of biblically functioning relationships, God. We ask right now that you would do exactly what um, I ask for, Lord. That 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 we would be one with each other in our marriages, and until God we are one in marriage, that we would remain self possessed people, that we'd be able to know God that we um, have value. And that that value requires a major commitment to access. And we pray, Lord, that pray that each and every man and woman in the room would just be drawn in closer to your presence through their marriages. And we know, God, there are some rough roads ahead for some of us. But, Lord, you are with us. And you've called us to take steps And each and every time we take a step, you are right there in front of us. You are waiting to receive us. So to that end, God, be in, near, with, and around us at all times. It's in your name we pray, amen.